Welcome back to the Global Supply Chain Week, day three. My name is Andrew Cox, and I'm a senior retail analyst here at FreightWaves. And today is all about consumer packaged goods and perishables. Obviously, the coronavirus impacted supply chains across the continents and nearly every industry, but maybe more so the CPG because of the large demand swings and supply swings that we saw. To detail some of those disruptions and chart a path forward, we have Tom Madrecki for a keynote today. Tom is the Vice President of Supply Chain at the Consumer Brands Association. Before joining CBA, Tom spent more than seven years at UPS over two stints. Tom, welcome to the Global Supply Chain Week, and thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much, Andrew. Uh, it's a great to be here and share a little bit of a perspective from the CPG industry. Yeah, we are very glad to have you. Tom, I'd like most of this conversation to be forward-looking, as forward-looking as possible, answering the now what, but we would be remiss to not take a look back and recap some of the disruptions that we've seen over the past year. So give us a little bit of a recap of the CPG supply chain and the disruptions that were felt uh, since COVID hit in March. Yeah, I don't think that it needs to to be, you know, reminded, anyone needs to be reminded of the fact that when they went to the uh, grocery store early in the pandemic, uh, that they were confronted with either, you know, scarce pr products, uh, you know, not being able to find the thing that they expected on the shelf, um, whether that was toilet paper or disinfecting wipes or meats or anything like that. Um, everybody knows what happened or at least how they experienced it as a consumer. Um, behind the scenes, I think that what was happening was essentially that not only were you, you seeing a huge changes in the demand and where it was coming from, right? Obviously, that you had a bunch of restaurants close, you had, uh, you know, stadiums, bar, like everything was shut down there. But then at the same time, you saw this huge uptick in, in household purchasing. Um, but you also saw uh, issues around PPE availability, uh, the ability for, for workers to actually produce products safely. Um, I think that one of the things that were sort of like a hallmark of the very, I'm going back in my memory to like the very early days of COVID was that we were just even trying to explain to regulators and to others that the same uh, PPE and uh, you know other safety uh, equipment and things that were needed from the healthcare side were also needed in many CPG operations just because of how these, these products are manufactured. Uh, and so just having that dialogue uh, and being able to keep workers safe was really the, the first challenge. And then it became a challenge, well, how do you actually get those products to, to consumers and, and ensure that they're uh, available, uh, which required not only the transportation capacity, which which then there, there are a host of challenges there. I don't need to go down that path with anyone that's, that's listening to this. Uh, I'm sure that everyone's acquainted with the truck driver shortage and other challenges there. Um, but also then uh, required a sort of a, a level set with with retailers and a new conversation because of that demand shift and because of the sort of the the radical changes that were afoot in the supply chain a lot of these systems that had previously been automated all of a sudden had to be done uh, almost you've seen in person i you saw many companies just sort of say like hey like stop using the computer system altogether it's giving bad information um, we're just going to do it by hand for you know until we get get things under control um, and so it was that sort of like that full crisis mode response, uh, and it was a sustained response as well, because the, uh, you know, you saw that initial panic buying subside, but you still saw year over year on average, let's say like 30% increased demand in many product categories, uh, that were sort of, you know, more, much more higher in demand, like disinfecting wipes, you see like, you know, hundred percent or like sort of this ridiculous continued demand that's still there, um, even though, of course, that you still have, you know, worker safety issues and other challenges to, to, to deal with as a company and just trying to keep up and run what's essentially a 24-7 operation at this point. 
Yeah, Tom, there were certainly a lot of disruptions. The first one that comes to mind when, as a consumer, when I go to the grocery store was obviously the the stockouts, the mass-wide stockouts we saw. It started there in toilet paper and paper towels, as you said, but it uh, it quickly grew. One day there was no meat, and then one day there was no beans or rice or, uh, or, uh, or pasta. So it just seemed that they kept growing and growing, the stockouts. What have grocers and CPG brands, manufacturers, what have they done over the past year to build resilience in their supply chains to ensure that these stockouts don't happen if there's another uh, surge in demand? Right. I mean, so this notion of, of resilience, um, one is, I think, just sort of like a sort of a, a North Star going forward for a lot of these these brands and for the industry as a whole. Um, and even in our conversations with government and other, and other entities that like putting resilience at the, at the, the core is, is, a, is a, just like a sort of a strategic mind mind shift, right? Like you're changing the orientation of something for away from just pure, like what is the most like efficient system possible to building in resiliency and accounting for risk up front. And that isn't to say that efficiency isn't still a part of that. But if you know that you're going to have what is increasingly no longer really like a quote, like black swan event, right? They like, if a, if a black swan event keeps happening, it's, it's really no longer a black swan. It's just like accounting for risk. Um, so if you know that that's going to happen or you're knowing you're going to have disruption, how can you build in a degree of replication or duplication in the system so that you have alternative means of going to market or you have, you know, a, a sort of built in uh, risk mitigation into into the, your supply network? It also is really a, a shift away from rather like linear chain thinking when it comes to, to you know, the value chain and, and more to having more of a network mindset. And that goes to network design. It goes to. Uh, sort of like how you're thinking about integrating many of the companies that you've acquired, certainly the CPG industry, uh, which has, is an old industry. It's also grown through acquisition for, for so long um, that, that there's, a, I think, a, a need to revisit. And many companies are doing this now when they're looking to their uh, their network and they're, and they're thinking about how do you, if you could sort of do things over and you weren't just sort of building uh, as quickly as possible as you, you were before, but if you could revisit everything, think strategically based on the experience of COVID, how would you want to redesign that and, and sort of redesign your own network? Uh, the last piece I'd mentioned is the, that retail collaboration piece, uh, because and one of the things we saw during COVID was that the companies that were able to sort of pivot the best, that were able to ensure the availability of product were the ones that had open and transparent lines of communication with their retail partners. And that emphasis on collaboration is, I think, something you'll see going forward as a, as a key part of that resiliency. And that goes to the ability to safely share data, to be more open about what you have, when you have it, wh when people want it, right? Like it, it goes and touches on all that. And if you're able to, to shift into that more collaborative uh, you know, work stream with your retail partners, uh, I think that you'll, you'll find that those CPGs are the ones that are more successful going forward. So I do want to circle back and talk a little bit more about the collaboration that evolved throughout the coronavirus pandemic. But I do want to touch on something you mentioned in your previous answer that was migrating away from a value chain to more of a value network. I thought that made a lot of sense. And in this industry, we talk a lot um, over the past year about moving away from a just-in-time uh, supply chain to a just-in-case supply chain. Is that something that your members have been saying that they're pushing forward, uh, pushing for? Yeah, I mean, maybe not the the exact same verbiage. I mean, everybody has sort of like different ways of, of talking about this issue. But that notion of a of a chain to a network approach actually arose out of a study that the Consumer Brands Association did along with Accenture and Coyote Logistics, where we surveyed uh, many of the leading CPG 
uh, brands executives and sort of you know, got a ton of feedback from CPGs about what they were doing and how they were investing in their operations. Where were, where were their sort of pain points? What was keeping them up at night? Just the full extent of, of questions you can imagine. Uh, and the feedback that we received was that they were uh, this this notion of just sort of uh, producing and, and working as efficiently as possible and sort of like applying this older way of doing business was no longer suited to the increasingly fast paced nature of business today, not only because of COVID, but because of uh, sort of the evolving retail landscape when it comes to e-commerce, when it comes to, you know, accounting for and dealing with issues around the sort of transportation capacity crunch or others, like you need to be more flexible and nimble uh, and to better incorporate technology and, and leverage data where possible to better utilize assets, to, to ensure that you are hitting your sustainability targets within, you know, your sort of operation. It, it touches on all of those major goals, I think, that CPGs have when it comes to, you know, sustainability and more efficiency, growth. Uh, ability to meet consumer demand, but it's it's reliant on that shift in mindset from chains to, to networks. So Tom, as you mentioned, collaboration was a big piece in 2020. We saw a lot more collaboration, not only between retailers and other retailers or brands, but between manufacturers and brands. Why do you think we saw an explosion of this in 2020? And do you think it will stick post COVID in a more normal landscape? Yeah, I mean, Andrew, just to uh, be very frank, just sort of like cut to the gist. The original reason I think you saw it was to, to your point, I'm like out of stocks. Like people were like, "Where is the toilet paper? Like, where is the product?" Right? And we had a number of conversations with with manufacturers that said that they were able to get more done with their retail partners in the span of let's say two weeks um, or even like day than they were able to get done in like the last twenty years or the last 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 ten years, right? Because all of a sudden you sort of just got to like, you have the come to Jesus moment and everybody's at the table and you're like, well, we just got to deal with this. Um, and you can hash it out. And it's, it's, you, you sort of strip away, I think some of the, the artifice of, of, you know, what doing business normally looks like um, because of that crisis mindset. I do think it's here to stay though, because again, to that, the point of the increasingly, I think fast paced nature of, of what business looks like today. And the fact that retailers also need to to shift and account for, for e-commerce growth. Like they're changing how they do business, which requires their suppliers, the manufacturers to, to have that conversation. Like, okay, well, where are you going as a business? Because that's the, the manufacturer's growth opportunity. Like that's the, they're the, that's how they've reached their consumers or their, uh, they're ultimately like the, the purchases of their products. Um, and so the need for that conversation that I think everyone knows about uh, is what's going to make that collaboration stick because Everyone wants to grow. Everyone wants to sort of capitalize on that opportunity. Um, but you you have to have that conversation and that collaboration going forward in order to make it work. Uh, those that don't have that collaboration in place, it's just not going to to make sense for them. Yeah, uh, e-commerce online growth in grocery has exploded uh, in 2020, nearly tripling since the beginning of the year. And I do want to talk about e-commerce here in a moment, but I want to talk about the brands that were seen as reliable throughout the pandemic. So there was this flight to reliability. And I want you to talk to me about how the manufacturing supply chains were able to instill that reliability. It was just by having their product on the shelf. What did those companies do to ensure that their product stayed on the shelf and differentiated themselves from the rest of the pack? Yeah, I think that flight to reliability was one of the sort of like the hallmarks of COVID uh, for sure. And we, we did a host of consumer research where we were just surveying consumers and saying, um, you know, what sort of 
how do you make a decision based on you know different products? So what increased trust for you during COVID in terms of the CPG industry? And the number one thing again and again um, was just the the physical presence on a shelf, which which makes a lot of sense. Like that's like a, it's a manifestation of trust uh, in the industry when you actually go to the store and you're like, oh, the thing I wanted is there. Uh, it's it's not so the I you know I, and the other thing I think that people came to rely on was also just the the brands that they knew uh, maybe from their childhood maybe from you know just growing up um they reverted back to that in many ways and i think that the cpg industry frankly benefited from that um but to your to your question as to what differentiated the brands that were on the shelf versus versus not on the shelf some of it uh and this is not to um, oversimplify things but some of it was honestly just like sheer will of the industry to like buckle down get things done, even amid, um, you know, you saw absenteeism go from sort of like two to 3% on average to closer to eight, 10% in some cases, you saw some facility shut down, like there's a host of challenges there, but it required that shift to say like, you know, we're going to get through this, we're going to we're going to run operations over the weekend. We're going to we're going to change how we do business in order to keep up with the demand. The second piece I'd mention is that um, the CPG industry worked really closely with government um, to try to ensure that operations were able to continue and that we were able to thoughtfully, I think, explain and get through, uh, you know, some of the, the initial challenges around uh, COVID, whether it was just ensuring that the industry was deemed essential or that it was, you know, well, well understood as to who was essential in that value chain. Because I think one of the other things that, that happened is you also saw um, misunderstandings at time as to who was a part of the full supply chain. Uh, and so people were left out of that maybe that needed to be there. Um, if you, many of these CPG manufacturers, for example, rely on uh, different machinery manufactured maybe overseas or sort of customized specialty equipment needs to be repaired or you know taken care of by a specialty mechanic, maybe also from overseas. And those people maybe like, weren't uh, allowed into the country. Like there's all these complexities around COVID, right? So it's ensuring that the continuity of that value chain and the CPG industry, I think, really rose to the occasion. Um, you know, the Consumer Brands Association, for its part, advocating on behalf of the industry, trying to ensure that you know just that the business rate was able to continue, and that the CPG industry is able to to meet that consumer demand. The last piece I, I think I mentioned, and this goes to uh, the the retail collaboration piece, was was honesty and transparency. And I know it sounds sort of uh, funny to say that the, the CPG industry, the, the brands that did best and that were seen to be the most reliable were the most open and transparent with with their uh, their retail partners, even when they didn't have product to offer, right? You never want to like overcommit. You never want to uh, be the, the the person that, that sort of over promises. But there's also a tendency, I think, at times to, to try to, to sort of, you know, maintain the status quo, like not rock the boat a little bit if you know that you're in a crisis. Um, but I think what was sort of not surprising, but you saw some of the companies that were experiencing the highest levels of demand that did, frankly didn't have capacity to manufacture more disinfecting wipes or or sort of, you know, were, weren't in the, let's say the best position possible given the strain on the supply chain. Um, and they were open and they're transparent. And they say like, you know, this is what we have. This is how we're going to work with you. It, is, it, it changed the, the conversation, I think, for them. Uh, and they've sort of stayed the course and are seen as these really, really trusted brands in America right now. 
Yeah, that's something that uh, Peloton is dealing with right now. They've been not as transparent and not upfront about the delivery windows and they're struggling. Uh, a lot of people are very upset about it. So let's talk about online grocery because it's been a major uh, growth part of the seg- part of the industry for 2020. It still lags behind most other industries when it comes to a percentage of online sales. It's only about 12 or 13%, but that's triple where it was pre-COVID. And then additionally, it's actually stayed at its peak level since March. So th- the online grocery may be a smaller subset of, this, of the industry, but it's going nowhere and it's here to stay. So with the growth in e-commerce, what are the conversations that manufacturers, that your members need to be having with retailers to ensure that their operations are aligning and, and their goals are aligning? Yeah, and I, mean, I, th- I think that the whole conversation around e-commerce is fascinating, not just, uh, you know, from my professional level and, you know, it's like working with CPGs, but also even just like personally, right? Like um, pre-COVID, I was not the person that was was ordering groceries online. Um, I like going to the grocery store. I like picking out my fish. I like picking out like, you know, like, you know going through the produce and figuring out like what's best. And at the end of the day, though, you realized, especially during COVID, one, that like, you don't have the like the amount of time that you would even just spend at the grocery store relative to being able to add items to your cart that you previously were like you save so much time yeah the the fish wasn't perfect or like something wasn't exactly right but but generally speaking you're pretty happy and all of a sudden you get to this time back and especially like working from home and like having a kid or like whatever the case is it makes it so much easier and so the first thing i'd mention is that there's a stickiness i think to uh, e-commerce or online grocery buying that is here. I don't think it's like gonna radically scale back. Maybe you'll see a small sort of like plateau or like it sort of dip, but it's here to stay and it's just been accelerated. Um, you see this sort of predictions that it's anywhere from some people say three years, five years, 10 years, everybody has their different number, right? But um, clearly that trend has, has accelerated and the need for the conversation between manufacturers and retailers around basically what to do with it and how to make that model work needs to happen. I don't think that anyone has has completely figured it out. It also is a space that there, it's not just one sort of uh, monolithic notion of like e-commerce grocery, right? There's so many different iterations of what that looks like when it comes to going direct to consumer or click and collect. Um, And everybody's going to need to sort of find their own way, if you will. And there's also from a a CPG manufacturer perspective, there's going to be different um, uh, sort of most successful strategies dependent on the product category, dependent on the product itself, dependent on the brand. Um, And so you saw some manufacturers, they have their own sort of direct to consumer uh, platform that they've that they listed for certain products um, that may work for for those products. You may see other cases where it makes sense to go direct to I say direct to consumer, but like direct to uh, wholesale or to restaurant or to to some you know sort of large buyer for certain products as well. Um, you'll see other cases where it's really just a matter of trying to have manufacturers work alongside their retail partners and better understand um, you know what is. Uh, sort of in-store, let's say, use an example, like in-store promotion look like if there is no longer a sort of physical storefront um, and what needs to change about how you do uh, couponing or whatever the case is to drive growth and to make it sustainable financially. Um, because to the point around, and, and I don't want to speak you know, totally on behalf of the, the retail industry, um, but I do think that the last mile uh, is clearly a, a costly and uh, not necessarily uh, easy space to play in. Uh, and this is just even going back to my experience at UPS, right? That like 
it, unless you can figure that out and make that cost effective and to make the margins work, uh, you're, and especially given that the CPG industry as it is, is not a high margin industry, um, it's going to be a really complicated and thorny issue for folks to deal with. Um, but the demand is there from a consumer perspective. And so you sort of like, it, you have to have that conversation and you have to figure it out. Um, when it comes to, you know, the, the, that last mile piece and just sort of accounting for it. And I think that that'll require some really thoughtful conversation between manufacturers and retailers from the, from the inbound perspective to, to retail. I think there's also going to be needed conversations around like replenishment schedule, uh, ordering what is, you know, sort of the notions around like OTIF and what is, what, what are the desired levels of performance that retailers are putting on CPGs? That conversation can also shift. Um, I think the model today, um, and one in which I think that, that retail has a lot of leverage over manufacturers today about like, these are our demands, or this is what the performance targets are that we want you to hit. Um, that convert, that model is in some ways punitive, right? It's based on, we set the bar, you didn't hit the bar. Okay. Now here's a finer fee going forward. You could see models unfold that are more collaborative where everybody agrees up front, like, this is what we want to get out of uh, this, you know, this, in, this retail to CPG engagement. These are the desired levels of performance, and we're going to accurately price those, and we're going to uh, make things more transparent. Everybody's going to understand what the costs are involved in this. Um, and through that more collaborative approach that's not as punitive, right, and by pricing things accurately up front, you're able to drive greater sort of shared uh, value in that, uh, and, and everybody's more on sort of a level playing field, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. It seems like collaboration is a win-win for, for both parties involved, but I do want to talk about direct to consumer for a moment because it's, it's very interesting to me. You know, the, the first one I think I remember seeing was Mattel, uh, selling their, their toys and things online direct to consumer. And then we've seen even some massive CPG brands, Pepsi and Kraft Heinz that have rolled out, um, their Shopify plus, uh, members and they have their own direct to consumer. Uh, sites now. So, and, and this just makes so much sense to me. Like if you are a hospital or a hospital cafeteria or a school or a hotel for you to be buying your condiments directly from Kraft Heinz rather than uh, Cisco or, or whatever um, distributor you would like, is this, is this the future? Are we, are we not making a big enough deal out of this? Or, or do you think that this is just kind of a fad and it doesn't stick long-term because of the difficulties and the, the new things that they have to implement to make a direct consumer model work? Yeah, I hate making a a complex question more complex or like sort of like doing like the deferral thing, right? Or like you sort of get a question, you're like, ah, it's, it's more complicated, complicated, but it, but it actually is. And the reason I say that is that, um, you know, it depends, I think, entirely on the type of product and what people are, you know, Pepsi's sort of snacks.com approach, I think works because there's, you know, a diversity of, of you know, snacks or flavors that you know people want to have access to um like there's there is an, a clear opportunity i think there that makes sense the same when you look to things like uh sort of uh you know to your door personal care items or certain you know certain categories like that that have, have seen even growth before covid um but then there's other things where at the end of the day, consumers want convenience. They wanted the ability to purchase all of their products together at the grocery store. And so going through a retail channel first or some type of a consolidation uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so I think that what you'll see is a plethora of different platforms dependent on the product category, dependent on the sort of 
the, the type of thing that's on offer and the desired outcome when it comes to uh, sort of that growth and, and to even the point about like going more direct to restaurants or to, to wholesale buyers, things like that. It, it sort of ma- that makes sense, I think, because of the scale. Um, so it's, a, it's I think it's a conversation around what is the product? What is the scale of the product? Um, where are the costs involved? And I think that that um, it all goes back to, at the end of the day in some ways to making the margins work. Um, and just sort of figuring out for each different direct consumer or e-commerce case, how do you make that financial model work? And I think everybody pre-COVID sort of understood how the the CPG to retail uh, margin model worked. Like that's like that's the standard grocery model. Going into this like sort of new era where some things are sold online, some things are sold through a retailer, but then picked up in line. Other things are sold online, picked up at the store, but somebody ran around the store and like put it all in. Like that sort of has entirely disrupted what that model looks like. And so people just need to, I think, figure out uh, sort of the financials that underlie all of that. Yeah, it seems like they're starting to seem like 2021 was just kind of a year of throw spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks, <laughs> see what customers like, and then we'll try to make it more profitable down the road. I saw some recent uh, analysis from Gartner that said 30% of, t- of a leading 500 retailers are rolling back free returns. And I think 12.5% were rolling back two free day shipping. So they're thinking about these these new fulfillment methods that they've expanded upon and trying to make them more efficient and more profitable or, or incentivizing customers to use the more efficient and more profitable ones rather Let's talk about technology uh, for a moment because it doesn't seem well from the from an outsider's perspective uh, of this industry. It doesn't seem that there's been many like technological breakthroughs in 2020. It was rather just you know chains just using technology that was already available to them that they've been reluctant to use uh, so far. What do you think new technologies, especially um, with at retailers, how should the conversations go? I know we've we've touched on this a bit, but how should the conversation go between manufacturers and retailers when it comes to new technology that's being rolled out and what technology are manufacturers looking at when it comes to direct consumer and e-commerce models and different fulfillment methods? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm going back to the comment that was made um, by one of our members around sort of being able to get more, more things done in the span of, you know, a couple of days than, than it could like over the course of several years. Um, one of the things in uh, the Consumer Brands Association, along with uh, Vector Software, um, which is a startup out of the Bay Area, uh, and our, our partners, Accenture and Coyote Logistics, the CSCMP, GS1, uh, is just an example. We brought together, um, you know, upwards of, of 30 CPGs, uh, a dozen or so retailers, uh, carriers, other members of the supply chain community to create a contactless delivery task force. And really the, the premise of this, right, was it was originally to keep workers safe during COVID to prevent uh, issues around uh, sort of transmission between dock personnel and the truck driver that shows up, uh, the security guard, like to minimize all that. But it was done with an eye towards minimizing paperwork, um, which is hardly a novel concept. Uh, to your point about like, is it new technology? Um, it is. It's you know, it's it's new in the sense that it's being applied in an, in a new way. It's new in the sense that there's a uh, sort of the visual recognition stuff and like that underlies a lot of it, I think is cutting edge and like it is, it is sort of, you know, leading in, in a new technology era, but the, the notion of going from like paperwork to electronic is not, is not new. Right. Um, that's not like some novel concept, but it, for whatever reason, you know, because of the, the way that the industry is structured, because of the way the supply chain runs, um, a lot of it is paperwork based. 
and so being able to to imagine a future that is contactless and increasingly so right that you can minimize not just the 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 touches at when a product arrives but that you have predictive ability and visibility all across the supply chain right you can start imagining a future that not only is contactless but then you have end-to-end -end visibility we also launched a, a similar project with four kites uh, that was looking more at this, this, this issue of end-to-end -end visibility and as you layer these technologies on top of one another when you have visibility when you have the ability to have more sort of like seamless touchless handoffs in the supply chain um you can also then start to imagine layering like AI and like predictive technology. So then your model um, can more or less like start to, to optimize and adapt more in real time. And that goes, I think, to those, this, this question of like, how do you build a more resilient supply chain or how do you have sort of a network mindset versus more of a linear chain concept is that it's enabled by these technology uh, sort of uh, sort of enablers, if you will, right? That like each piece adds on and, and allows that system to work uh, not only more efficiently, but then to adapt more in real time as, as disruptions occur. Tom, you told me before we got on the call here that sustainability kind of took a backseat throughout COVID simply because there were so many other, we were in that crisis mindset that you had mentioned earlier. But it seems like when people are building a, building more resilience in their supply chain, making major changes to their supply chain, this could be actually a good opportunity to have conversations about sustainability with transportation partners. Because manufacturers and many of your member group, maybe many of your member group are not, uh, do not own their own trucks or do not own their own transportation capacity. What kind of, what kind of conversation should they be having with, um, with transportation partners? Because they see transportation as a big place to, to grow and be better, uh, more sustainable. What conversation should they have? Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think that one of the, you know, the sustainability means so many different things, right? So like for, for many of, of these companies, um, all through COVID, they were walking and chewing gum at the same time. They're making commitments on the recycling front. They're making commitments on a packaging front. Um, but the the you know at least in in my world from a supply chain standpoint, and working with these companies, one of the things that I have seen uh, even in the last couple of weeks, even in the you know, last couple of months, is this renewed interest in. And I think part of this ties back to the Biden administration, frankly, and and companies knowing where that administration is headed when it comes to and sort of what's on it, what's on its mind when it comes to transportation. Um, that the, if, if you look to the transport sector, uh, it's the one sector that hasn't seen a decline in carbon emissions um, or the sort of like plateaued. Um, other sectors are making sort of significant inroads in that regard. Uh, and if you then dive deeper into the transportation sector, there's clearly, um, you know, a, a portion of those emissions that are tied to freight or are tied to uh, commercial vehicles. And so it's, it's not sort of uh, missing on anyone that like, that's an, it's an, it's an underlying issue. If you're going to make certain carbon emissions uh, reduction commitments, or you're going to say something about how you want to evolve as a company or become more of like a, a zero carbon uh, tech company, you have to figure out what that looks like. And to your point, uh, it's not an easy conversation because the you're so reliant on outside transportation spend or you're so uh, sort of beholden to what's available to you currently from a technology perspective that it, it, there's not like, oh, let's just like flip the switch. We'll all go all, all EV or we'll double down on alternative fuels or, or we'll, we'll transition to, to hyper. Like it's just not available. Um, and so I think that what if, if I, in a, in a CPG's, uh, shoes and I'm, and I'm thinking about what is to come. Uh, 
there's a couple of different things that come out of that. One is that I'm going to work with my carriers and try to sort of see, you know, is there, are there opportunities to, to shift or are there opportunities to um, look at that? Granted, there may not be, or there, there may be limited opportunities to do that because of the, the transportation capacity crunch and people, frankly, just trying to get as much capacity as they can uh, and ensure that, that goods are picked up. The, the, the second thing though, and I think that where you see companies focused with, with government and sort of asking or, or talking about this more and more is what does the underlying infrastructure need to look like so that in maybe not, you know, we're not going to fix transportation sustainability this year, um, but maybe in five, 10 subsequent years that you have that underlying infrastructure uh, to, to, to be more sort of EV driven or to, to, to have the, the ability to move the needle on, on carbon emissions and, and make reductions. Um, and I think that that ties it back to, you know, issues that we already know are going to happen this year around transportation infrastructure bill or other, other uh, aspects there. And how do you, how do you build, um, and I kind of account for it's just like even transportation funding mechanisms, things like a vehicle miles travel tax or other things like that, so that you have a system that is paid for, you have a system that then has the infrastructure that goes alongside it so that you, you lay that foundation for what would be a more sustainable transportation system long term. It's interesting that you mentioned that the carbon emissions for, for the trucking industry or the shipping industry haven't uh, plateaued, haven't really declined over the past few years or decades. Susie Schoenberg, the uh, head and founder of Flexboard.org, just told me yesterday that if shipping was a country, it would be the sixth largest polluter on the planet. So yes, it's it's definitely a huge and major polluter. I, I wanted to ask you, that's a good segue into policy though, into the government. I think this would be a good place to to put an end to wrap it up afterwards. It's just, you know, what is the need for policy alongside these industry efforts? What What is the role of government in adapting a more modern supply chain and supporting these retailers and these manufacturers in it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that one of the things that people and people already, as it is, probably don't think apart from those listening and like us, like the supply chain as it is, is not something that's like top of mind for, for everyone in the world um, until right? They go to the grocery store and they can't find what they want. Then all of a sudden supply chain becomes like the hot button issue that they all care about. And they want to have dinner table conversation around. Um, supply chain policy is probably like even want, like they really don't care about that most days. And so I think what, what happens sometimes is that if the supply chain is invisible and supply chain policy is even more invisible, you don't realize the extent to which policy every day shapes supply chains. Like, like, layers and layers of policy shape the that that sort of macro environment in which supply chains operate whether and obvious examples are things like transportation and trade policy like like sort of like the literal roads and bridges that underlies and like sort of the rules and regulations as to how you sort of can can go across borders and things of that nature like there's a clear thing there but um everything from usda to fda to epa like all of these things in some ways shape that that macro environment of supply chains. Um, the Consumer Brands Association and CSCMP are actually um, just about to, to publish a report that for the first time, I think really takes a look at uh, the full scope of supply chain policy when it comes to, uh, you know, what are all of those different regulations, laws, other things that impact supply chains that play some sort of guiding role in, in their development and, and ultimately impact national competitiveness and national resiliency when it comes to, to sort of supply chain performance. Um, and the, the, the key central finding one is that 
there's a bunch of policies that that do impact that, and that there's also at times, frankly, a a degree of um, haphazardness, uh, or that it's sort of accidental at times. It's not really orchestrated in any particular way, right? Like, yes, there's a transportation bill, and the original intention of it was to build roads and bridges. Like, there's a there's a, a, a frame of reference there, and it's and it's not to take anything away from the good work that is done on that transportation bill, but it's not necessarily done with an eye towards let's do a transportation bill so that we have a more uh, properly functioning supply chain. And the same goes with every other policy that's out there, right? Everybody's sort of like in their silo, in their lane, and there's no uh, interagency coordination. There's no level of sort of like, oh, like if we did it that way or we did it this way, the whole system would work better. And so the, the report ultimately, I think, calls for um, that level of enhanced coordination and just being more strategic uh, and, and frankly taking more of the learnings that I think that we've seen from the supply chain community, right? Like supply chains over the course of time have become more integrated. The, the supply chain function is no longer within any company, especially CPGs. It's no longer just like efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. Um, it is, it ties in sustainability. It ties in all of the other, those other uh, aspects of, of doing business, uh, and it thinks about growth in a more holistic way. And so, ultimately, I think that you know the the report puts forward this notion that um, there's this clear opportunity for government to step up to to play uh, not a larger role in supply chain, but a, but a more coordinated one. Right? Like there there's plenty of policy already there. It just needs to be uh, wrapped together in, in a in a smarter way. You're not going to get any argument from me there, man. Wrapping things in a smarter way, and actually maybe having some more input from the people that are going to be most affected by it. I think that's a good way to move forward with any policy yeah. in the U.S. Tom, I got to thank you for the time, man. I also want to give you the opportunity to tell anybody watching where they can go learn more about the CBA or get involved uh, with your organization. Definitely, uh, and, and thank you, Andrew, for taking so much time. Folks can just go to our website, consumerbrandsassociation.org. Uh, we also have a whole uh, host of resources for, for CPGs and others around the coronavirus, um, so definitely check that out. Of course, Tom, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a, an incredible way to start the day. Start the day to Global Supply Chain Week Day 3, all about CPG and perishables. So stay tuned to learn a lot more about the industry. There are a lot of insights coming from industry experts soon. Stay tuned.